Well, you're joining us right at the end uh, of our Easter series. Uh, our Easter series this year, it's been called Life Hacks, How the Easter Story Makes Sense of Our Lives Today. And I thought, I thought it would be helpful to kind of round off uh, and just ask a quick question. Life Hacks, what are they? And is there something bigger than just hacks? So firstly, what are life hacks? Some of you might not have heard the term, but life hacks, or, or a life hack, is any trick, shortcut, skill, or novelty method that increases productivity and efficiency in all walks of life. I thought that was a great description of a life hack. So I thought, what, what's, uh, what are some of the life hacks that I've really been impressed with that's really grabbed me? One is, uh, this, this is the first one. You know, if you're writing out a form or you're writing something and you, you make a mistake, you write the wrong word. And then you're faced with, you don't want the person who's receiving the form to see what you've written. And you know, that, you know when you scribble it out, you can kind of make the letters out. Here's a great life hack. Write more letters over the top. Oh, genius! Isn't that amazing? Just write other letters over the top and it confuses the letters underneath and that's great. Yeah, that, I thought it was great. <laughs> so, so let me give you my life hack. Honestly, I've been waiting all series to share this life hack with you. This is my life hack. I'm look, looking at Rachel and she's thinking, oh no, here we go. So, here's a, here is, this is a great life hack. Guys, you know when you put a collar on uh, or a shirt on and you put maybe a jumper over the top and you grab it and you put it on and it's all crinkly? It's all a bit messy and you're thinking, this, I can't go out, the collar looks a mess, but I'm covering the rest of it, not being ironed. Here is a belting life hack. Straightening tongues. Genius. Genius, get your straighteners, well, get somebody's straighteners, and just use them like an iron. It's fantastic, it's amazing, you can iron a collar with straighteners. Tell you what, in an emergency, I've ironed a whole shirt, sleeves, front of the shirt, you can do all, it doesn't matter about the back, as long as the front's okay, jacket on, brilliant, absolutely amazing. Straighteners for ironing. Brilliant. But here's the thing. I think life hacks point to something really interesting for us and absolutely essential. In a kind of a glib way and in a, and in a funny way, some life hacks are really great. I saw somebody who made flip-flops out of plastic water bottles. Two strips, cut it, put your finger in, crush the rest, and you've got a pair of flip-flops. Absolutely great if you're marooned on a beach. But all that life hacks do is they point us to something. I think they point us to the idea that the world that we live in isn't quite the world that it ought to be. We've got pressures, we've got demands, we've got things coming at us. And some hacks which give us extra productivity, which help us to get through life, are just that. They're ways to get through stuff. But it's because life is not as it ought to be. It's not the way it should be. 
There are demands, there are things that we face which are challenges. Now, we've used the term life hacks in this series, but what we've tried to do is we've related them, we hope, to the real challenges of life, the questions that we face, our identity, who we are, the things that we desire, the things that we pursue as real hopes and security for our life. I want to relate that challenge of the question of the world that we live in with something that Jesus said. Luke chapter 10 and verse 10, he said, he said this. This was something related to uh, the challenge of the world that we live in and the fact that the evil one, the Bible describes the evil one as Satan, the one who disrupts the world for the people who are made in the image of God. He said this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's the world that we live in, a world which is disrupted, where our joy and our satisfaction and our hope and our desires are, are stolen. And, the, and our, our love for the God who made us even is stolen. Our desire for Him is stolen. And Jesus said this, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, actually the message of Jesus ultimately is not a hack to get round life. It's the very hope of a full life. That's an amazing statement that Jesus makes. And I think it's something that we absolutely have to dig into. Because this is the issue, and this is where I think maybe you're looking on at the idea of the Christian faith. Maybe you're newly committed to this Christian faith. Maybe you've walked this Christian journey for years. Wherever you are on that, that kind of spectrum, here's the issue. Jesus says He has come to give fullness of life but if we've walked the Christian walk for any t reasonable time we'll know this it doesn't feel like a full life so how does that work how do I have confidence in a full life in the face of evidence which seems to suggest that my life is not full and still have hope in the words of Jesus. I think the text that we're concluding our Easter journey with really speaks into that. And it's the account of these two men. On, it's described as the road to Emmaus. The story is really very simple. If we can get that text up on the screen, that'd be great. The story is simple. Two men on a journey. They're walking away from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven kilometers, I think it's something that kind of order, some distance away from Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Uh, and they're traveling because they are totally broken. They're walking away from an experience. The experience has been Jesus, who they have walked with for a number of years, who they have trusted, who they have hoped in, has been killed. 
They're walking away. And the story very simply is this. Jesus meets with them. He engages with them. And then he shows himself to them. And this is the critical hack, if you like, for today. He creates for them a turning point in life. A turning point. Think back at some of your crucial life turning points. We've all had them. Moments where it could have gone in one direction or in another direction. Where things unfold and actually the whole of the rest of our life is shaped by that moment. This is a turning point for these two men. So let's dig into it a little bit. The first thing I think we see is confusing grief. Verse 14. These two men who are walking on the road uh, to Emmaus. Verse 14 says, They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? That's the account that we read. The downcast faces... I think Luke writes this brilliantly, doesn't he? He wants us to get into the experience. He wants us to sit alongside these two guys. To, 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 to really, he doesn't just say they were disappointed. He says they have downcast faces. Look at the, the other way that he describes it. When Jesus asks them what they were discussing, you can imagine them just walking along and Jesus says, what? What are you discussing? And they kind of stopped. They stood still with downcast faces and they turned to him almost with incredulity. Are you for real? Have you been in Jerusalem? Are you the only person who hasn't heard what's been going on? They, They are shocked at the response of this man who they are walking with. They are dejected, they are confused, and they are full of grief. The source of despondency is their shattered hope. Look at how it continues. Verse 20, the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Here's the thing. Here's the shattered experience. They believed with all of their hearts that Jesus was the one. They were walking alongside Jesus for however many years, and now they realize that the hope that they had placed in Jesus has been shattered. For a start, he's been handed over to be crucified. He's been handed, do you, see the, do you see the way Luke is describing it? The chief priests and rulers handed him over to be crucified, but we had hoped that he would be 
the one to redeem Israel. Do you see the, the conflict there? If we'd hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel, why, oh why, oh why, would the chief priests hand him over to be crucified? Surely they would have been on his side. Surely. They're the chief priests of Israel. <laughs> and they hand him over to be crucified. Do you see the confusion? They've expected Jesus to be their hope. And the very people who should have had hope in Jesus turned him over to death. And they had hoped for so much more. How often is that our human experience? Maybe that has been your experience in life. That we have hopes. We have things that we invest so much into whether it's a person that we invest into, whether it's an idea that we invest into, whether it's an experience that we invest into, we place so much into things and people. And how often our human experience is that our hopes are shattered. That is the reality of human life. That is why this isn't just a cutesy life hack. It's asking the question, when those things happen, how can Jesus possibly say, I've come to give you a full life? How can He say that when these things are the reality? But I said it was confusing grief. It was confusing in the sense, yes, that they'd placed their hope in Jesus and the people who should have placed their hope in Jesus turned Him over. But there's another confusing aspect that opens up in verse 22 that adds to their confusion. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find His body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. You see the confusion? <laughs> it's confusing grief. Uh, and I think, it, again, it speaks into our human experience. In the face of grief, we really, really find it difficult to believe in any possibility of hope. See that? that? Luke is describing in these two men, just for many of us, our human response. In the face of shattered grief, we end up in a place where don't tell me any possible good news. I want to inhabit my grief. I want to live in grief. In fact, Grief has become my identity. So don't take it away from me. Why do we do that? Why do we make grief our identity and we say, I want to stay in grief? I, I think it's because, I'm pretty sure it's because, I'd placed my hope in something, I'd expected joy, now I have grief. Don't possibly... Don't give me something else that might fail me again. That's our problem. 
That's our experience. That's so often where we end up. We end up in a place where we cannot possibly trust hope because we believe it will let us down again. We want our identity to be something secure. It's a bit like, it's a bit like this. I remember, I remember when I was a little bit fitter and I used to ride a bike up hills for pleasure. Now, actually, the kind of the steepest hill I try to go up regularly is the banking on the track. That, that's enough, and it's very short. Long hills, I'm struggling now. I'll stay at the bottom because the joy of getting to the top, the success, the achievement of getting to the top, the kind of moment where you end up a blubbering wreck with sheer joy because you've got to the top, I, I won't hope in that because I might not make it and I'll stay at the bottom, thank you very much because I don't want to be anywhere that might possibly cause me to fall down again. I want to encourage you to really think about that in grief and sadness and being downcast. Somebody described it like this. We find it easier to be in the bottom of a pit because then we know we can't get any lower. Do you know what? We need to be in the bottom of each other's pits at times and say, come on out. Come with me. C come back up here because the air's fresh and the sun is shining, come with me. Do you know what? We can't stay down there all the time. Sometimes we've got to climb out and come back to the edge and say, we shout down every now and then saying, come on, come on, please come up. I'll nip down next week and I'll have a chat, but come on up because there is hope. How can we say that in a world with constant shattered dreams? Isn't it interesting what grief does? These men have experienced the miracles of Jesus, but when they are told that the miracle of the resurrection has happened, they cannot join the dots and say, maybe Jesus has risen. I'll stay in my grief. What does Jesus do? What do they need at that moment in time? because I think this is our journey of understanding. What do they need to find hope? What is our human instinct? In the middle of that, what's our human instinct? What would you want in the middle of grief? I know what my human instinct would be. I know what I would want. I would want somebody to come alongside me, to put their arm around me, to give me a hug, to love me, to say that it's okay and to say straight away, don't worry, I'm here. I want the experience of being loved. And there's nothing wrong with that. We need that. But Jesus knows that they need something way more important first. Because they're in the, they're, they're kind of, they're in the pit and in the bottom of the pit is sticky, oozing mud. They need a solid foundation. That's what they need. Look at what Jesus does. 
completely against, certainly against our 21st century emotional engagement, which is what we seek first. I'm not saying we shouldn't seek it. It's what we seek first as an answer to our problems. Jesus does counter what we would expect. Look at verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are. (laughs) Come on, Jesus. Look at their faces. Look how sad they are. That is not what they need. Or at least that's what we think. Unless he's telling them something way more important than just feelings. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then look at this. This is what Jesus actually does. He says that sentence. So, so we expect love. Jesus confronts them. But he doesn't leave it simply with confrontation. Look at what he does next. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. That is a mind-blowing sentence. Do you know what? There's things that, there's times, there's little incidents in the Bible where you just think, I just so wish I'd heard that conversation. I so wish I'd heard that. I would love to hear Jesus be able to take the 39 books of the Old Testament and in a really simple and logical and clear way, as they walk down the road, explain to the people who he is walking with how Moses and all of the prophets and all of that stuff that had gone before was pointing to him. I would love to hear that. Wouldn't you? I would just so... You know, sometimes I open the Old Testament. I'm like, okay, right, wow. Need to work out where this sits in the storyline. How does this work? Where is it placed? Historically, where is it? What's it saying then? What's it saying to us today? And Jesus goes, boom, 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 boom. All of this was about me. Because that is the foundation. Yes, they absolutely needed to know that the God who they trusted in is a God who loves them. They absolutely needed to know that. But at that moment in time, way more than knowing that love, they needed to know that Jesus was who He claimed to be. They needed to know that all of the history of the world, all of the Bible as they had it up to that point in time, all of the journey of God with His people was pointing to Jesus. That's what they needed to know. That's a foundation. That's taking their feet out of sinking mud and placing it on something solid in exactly the same way as it does for us today. If Jesus is who He claimed to be, everything changes. Everything changes. Because who He claimed to be 
was the God of heaven who'd come into this world. That's the claim that he makes. And furthermore, and the reason that Jesus goes from Moses right the way through all the prophets describing it about himself, furthermore, it wasn't just a last-minute decision that God made, it was always in the plan. He was saying right from the beginning, very beginning, get ready, get waiting, I know that you've rejected me, but I'm going to, I'm going to be born of the seed of the woman, and I'm going to crush the head of the serpent who has bruised the heel of my son. There is going to be a promise way back from the very beginning of time, all the way forward, and God is saying, I'm going to deliver. And Jesus is the one who delivers. That is game-changing. It really is. It is world-transforming. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, then everything changes. That is the foundation that they needed. So Jesus places that foundation for them. I just, I, I wish I was there. It must have been an amazing conversation. They're walking along to Emmaus. They arrive later on. Jesus makes out that he's going to carry on. They say, no, 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 no. That has been an amazing conversation. We didn't know you before. Now you're our friend. Come and eat with us. That's what eating meant in that culture. You never met, you never ate with anybody who wasn't a friend. You know, we pretty much have it still in our culture. Being very British, you know, when you go into a restaurant, it's a long bench table. There's 40 seats on two big benches. You've got to sit next to somebody that you don't know. So it's all a bit awkward, and how many chairs is it appropriate to leave as a gap so that you don't, you don't give any impression that you might end up talking to them, which would be really strange because they're not my friend. We've got a little bit of it, but in that culture, do you know what? You ate with friends. And these two men had said, during that conversation, our relationship has changed. Come and eat with us. Look at what happens. If there was a foundation, there is now recognition. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road opened and opened up the Scriptures to us? Jesus did something. But do you, see what, do you see what's going on? There is a moment where Jesus decides it is now time for you to recognize me. You, you, you kind of hear this story and you think, you've been with this Jesus for years and you don't recognize him? I don't know how that worked. I don't know how it worked. But I know that the intention from Jesus was this. You need your foundation first without recognizing me. And then you need the recognition to know that the hope that was placed in that foundation has actually happened. That's what you need. That's the step that you need to take. Don't have hope before you've got a foundation. Don't just love me just because you love me. Love me because of who I am. And then, when you see me, then it's game-changing. 
That's game changing. You see, this is the moment where their world turning point hit them. They've experienced this. They've said, didn't you know what's going on? You're the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about this. Jesus has been crucified. And then all the women say that they've seen an angel and, and we're just walking away because we're in grief. It's confusing. Don't want to trouble mind with it. But then there's a moment when they see Jesus. John Newton wrote a hymn. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. I think it's amazing words, aren't they? These troubled souls, these imprisoned, grief-stricken men have a divine shaft of light that explodes into their hearts when they recognize Jesus. That is what happens when we truly see Jesus. Now let me qualify that. For some people, when they truly see Jesus for the first time, it is like that. It is like this moment where light shines in and the imprisoned bondage that had been holding me, that had been making me fear everything which gave me no hope in life, is broken, and I have hope in life. But for others, it doesn't quite work like that. That's, that's coming to faith in Jesus. And I, I would describe coming to faith in Jesus like a train journey which crosses the border from one country to the next. Sometimes there are border crossings where you have to stop and get your passport out and show it at the border. And you know absolutely the moment where you cross the border. That's, a, that's one of those moments where the light of heaven shines into your heart and breaks in. And there's some here this afternoon who can say, I know that moment. For others of us, the journey crosses the border and we don't know where, but somewhere back there, I know I've crossed a border because now my heart has light shining into it. That's my experience. I truly don't know when I became a believer in Jesus but I know I do believe in Jesus. And I know that light has shone into my heart. And I want to encourage you, do not, if you're looking at this and you're thinking, I want that hope in Jesus, but you are looking and hearing these stories of people who've had those amazing moments like these guys where the light shines in and it's fantastic and you're thinking, that can't possibly be me because... I haven't had that experience, but I believe. But maybe I don't believe because that hasn't happened. Let me encourage you. It's not about how you cross the border. It's about being in the next country. Believe that. 
Believe in Jesus and the crossing of the border and the experience of the crossing of the border does not matter. It's the knowledge that Jesus has died and He lives and He has borne my guilt on the, his bo- in His body on the cross and I'd somewhere back there I trust it and believed it. There is recognition and finally there is hope. Look at how they respond. They got up, returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. They're really interesting words. He has appeared to Simon. Because when they left Jerusalem, they'd heard tales that he'd appeared to Simon and they'd thought, no, no, I'm out of here, sack it. I'm not off on that journey again because I've been devastated. And now they're they're drumming up another kind of, uh, another hope. And I'm going to be hurt. And they come back and they say, it's true. It's true. Do you see what's interesting though? He has appeared to Simon. Isn't that interesting? The confirmation this morning. They don't come and they say he's appeared to us. Isn't that interesting? It's almost as though they are saying in that moment in time, you've got to trust what was said this morning. We believe it now. I think one of the amazing unfoldings of the post-resurrection story is the way that Jesus appears to different people in different ways. Thomas, an absolute skeptical doubter, who says, I won't trust in the resurrection of Jesus until I can put my finger in the holes. And Jesus says, Thomas, come, come and do it. I love the fact that he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't need to. He doesn't need to wander over and say, let me just check out. Okay, yeah, I believe now. It's like, whoa. This is true. I believe in the resurrected Jesus. We come to the end of this series. The one thing I hope we've point, shone a light on pointed at is the way that we search for hope, meaning, worth in our existence. We look for it in all sorts of ways. There has been tragedy this past week, yet again, on Everest. Some of you will have seen it. I kind of follow it. I'm terrified now of heights, (laughs) but I'd love to think that I could have done that no chance. Mountaineering has always fascinated me. I think it's something about the triumph of the human being. I think it actually goes all the way back to God saying, go and subdue the earth. Go and make it yours. All of it. And that's part of, I think, why we, why we strive to, to climb and to achieve But you know, the problem is our striving is always on the knife edge of life and death. We're always on the border of sacrificing and eight people have died 
because they had placed their absolute hope in the achievement of that goal. I think it's a tragedy. But you know, there's part of me that can understand why they've done it. I understand. I'm not going to do it. I, I understand that desire to conquer. Even in the face of death. Because it's something written into us to find worth. And I think what Jesus says is you can find full worth and value and meaning in me and actually I will give you something way beyond your wildest dreams I will give you the absolute confidence in eternal life because I will rise the thing that will finally crush all of your hopes all of your dreams all of your aspirations ultimately is that final great enemy of death. Some of those climbers got to the top and died on the way down. Or was it Edmund Hillary says, a mountain's never conquered until you get back to the bottom. It's true, isn't it? Getting to the top. Mallory and Irving, did they get to the top? Got me on a, you got me on a subject now. It's all about, it's all about that question of worth and fulfillment and Jesus says I will give you a hope where the reality of you can be experienced for eternity in a world that I will create where I will say once again go and subdue the earth and never again be fearful of death isn't that amazing the hope of resurrection, Jesus says, go and subdue the earth again and never fear death. Go and do all of that stuff. Go and live in a recreated, reordered world where human flourishing is, yes, our goal, but it is human flourishing in the presence of Jesus. That is life. That's why Jesus could say, I have come to give them full life. Because I will conquer the very thing that stops the possibility of full life. That is the hope of the message of Easter.